invite you to take your Bibles now and turn with me to our scripture reading. The last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, and then also chapter 5. Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Then we'll read from chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation." And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, 
and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The text for this morning that we are going to be examining is from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. The text is verses 6 through 8, but I like to read verses 1 through 11. So Philippians 2, beginning at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as people of God, we are called to be people who remember. The Old Testament people of God were repeatedly instructed to remember the mighty works of God. They were instructed also to teach their children, as we read from Deuteronomy 6, to teach their children about the mighty works of God and about his law and his covenant faithfulness. That's one of the reasons why we celebrate the Lord's Day every week. The fourth commandment, we're told, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And in the Old Testament, the Lord said to his people, you shall remember, you shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, that the Lord took you out from there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Remember. In other words, they were to commemorate the Sabbath day. They were to commemorate 
or by, in the Sabbath day, they were to commemorate God's redemption of his people, the salvation they had received from the hand of the Lord. And we too are to keep the Lord's day as a day of commemoration, to commemorate the mighty deeds of God in the salvation that he has obtained for us in Christ. And the New Testament also gives us the command to remember. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, do this in remembrance of me. We are to celebrate the Lord's Supper in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. And one of the most beautiful descriptions of what he has done for us is found in Philippians chapter 2. Here we are reminded of the great salvation that Christ has obtained for us. And the great emphasis in these verses is on the self-emptying sacrifice, the humility of our Savior. And Paul uses vivid and poetic language to describe Christ's humiliation, his humble obedience. And congregation, the greatness of Christ's humility is measured by how low he was willing to stoop from the great heights from which he came. And we can read about that in Revelation, the book of Revelation. In the first chapter, the Apostle John gives us a vivid description of the glory of Jesus, the ascended Christ, the splendor of his person, the majesty of his presence. It reminds us of what the prophet Daniel saw. And in chapters 4 and 5, we can read about the glory of the heavenly throne room, the splendor that surrounds the, the throne of God, the throne in heaven, and the praise and the worship that he receives and deserves. This is a description of where Jesus came from. It's not just a description of the throne room after Christ's ascension. But this glory was there already before Christ came to earth. The Lord Jesus himself spoke about that in his high priestly prayer. This is his rightful and proper place because he is God. And Paul writes, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Christ possesses equality with God. As the Son of God, he deserves the same reverence, the same honor, the same worship, the same praise. And yet the Son of God did not grasp this for himself. He did not jealously guard his rights as the Son of God, instead, he willingly came into this fallen world on our behalf. He joined the sinners for whom he was about to die. And he did this voluntarily out of love for you and for me. He did this for us. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself. And that doesn't mean that he abandoned his divinity or his divine power, but it means that he humbled himself. He took on human form. He is the Lord of glory, but he set aside his glory. He emptied himself not by losing his divine qualities, 
but by assuming a human nature. He is truly Emmanuel, God with us. Fully and truly God, and yet fully and truly human. And then he went even further in his self-humiliation. As the servant of God, he became obedient to the Father, even to the extent of dying on a cross in naked shame for everyone to see, like a condemned criminal. The Apostle Paul writes elsewhere that it is a rare thing for someone to be willing to die for a righteous person, but that a, a good man would be willing to humble himself in such a way, to the degree as Christ did, and die in this way for the blessing of others. That's breathtaking, isn't it? He died for those who hate him. He died for his enemies as the righteous for the unrighteous, as the offended one for the offenders, as the innocent one for those who betrayed him. Words like astounding and amazing and and awe-inspiring don't even begin to describe this. Who can truly understand the height and the depth and the length and the breadth? of what God has done for us in Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians that the love of Jesus Christ surpasses knowledge. That the offended Lord of glory should so willingly enter into such humiliation that should leave us tongue-tied. At the same time, it should bring us to praise and adoration and reverence. The expressions that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 2 help us to understand the wonder of Christ's self-humiliation. They are expressions that portray the Lord Jesus as the second Adam. Even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It reminds us of Adam's failure. Adam was created in the image of God, but he grasped after equality with God. He he believed Satan's lie. If you eat from that tree, you will be like God. In contrast, Jesus, who always has the right to be equal with God, did not refuse to become obedient. The second expression is that the Son of God made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. That's an echo of what we read in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, where the prophet Isaiah speaks about the Christ who is to come. There he is described by God as my servant. And he did what Adam refused to do. He lived in obedience and served the Lord perfectly. And the third phrase that connects Christ to Adam comes at the end of verse 8, where Paul writes that the incarnate Son of God became obedient even unto death. While Adam's disobedience brought sin and death into the world, Jesus' obedience brings righteousness and life. So the Son of God came to undo what Adam did, undo the disobedience of Adam. And in order to do so, he had to experience the judgment of God and the wrath of God 
which Adam had brought down crashing onto the human race. As the Son of Man, he became obedient to his Father's will and plan. And he was obedient through his whole life, throughout his whole life, from his incarnation to his resurrection, even when he faced the horrors and the reality of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, he still prayed, your will be done. When every human instinct told him to run and to abandon his task, he bowed before the Father. And so in these verses, we see how Paul is making a twofold contrast in his description of Jesus' self-humbling. The first contrast is between the divine nature of the Son of God and the identity that he assumed as Son of Man. And the second contrast is to show how the last Adam became what the first Adam failed to be. It's no wonder that the work of Christ and passages like Philippians 2 produce great hymns and are described in poetic language. And it's no wonder that this kind of theology should move us to profound admiration and awe for our God who shows us so much grace and mercy and for the Son who has shown us so much love by entering our sin-filled world, our life, the mess that we made, And so, brothers and sisters, may our union with Christ then also lead us to greater humility. May our union with Christ lead us to imitate him more and more. That's what Paul calls us to do in this passage too, to to consider what Christ-like humility means for us. That we would not learn to stand up for our own so-called rights, but we're willing to give them up for the sake of others. And when we come together in worship and also to participate in the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper, that's an expression, congregation of our union with Christ, but also of our union with one another. Since we are united with Christ, we are also united with one another through the Spirit of Christ. And we're called to express that unity, not just when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, not just when we come to worship together, but also when we leave from here. And in the days between the Lord's days, in humility, consider others more significant than yourself. And let each of us not only look to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Become imitators of Christ and follow our Lord and Master. That's what it means to bow before him. that we would profess with our mouth and with our lives what it means that he is Lord. And he is Lord. He is king. He is victorious. And every knee bows to him. Satan has to bow to Christ. And sin has to bow to him. And death has to bow to him. And all creation bows to him because he is master and sovereign and Lord of lords and this Christ loves us died for us 
humbled himself for us. That we might live as exalted sons and daughters of God Most High. We are worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. In Christ, we are worthy. That is the consequence, the beautiful, amazing consequence of Christ's self-humbling work. And that's what we may rejoice in every Sunday. That's what we celebrate every Sunday. And that's what we may celebrate today, too, as we participate in the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. Amen.